there is an enormous amount of opportunity coming out of this for Alpine Resorts. This is Sarah Bordeaux, and you're listening to PodSAM, the podcast channel of SAM Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. On this episode, we welcomed a panel of operators from Australia and New Zealand to talk about everything operations, from staffing to rental to ski school and capacity issues. Many of these resorts have had to pivot mid-season due to changing mandatory restrictions in response to COVID-19, but many are also experiencing operational wins. We'll start the discussion here with SAM publisher, Olivia Rowan. Thank you all for joining us today on our Monday huddle. I'm Olivia Rowan, the publisher of SAM Magazine. We're very excited to welcome operators from Australia and New Zealand on today's huddle. We're going to hear a firsthand experience from them with uh, operating during uh, their skiers during a pandemic, um, something that we are anxiously looking uh, ahead to this season in North America. From rental and ski school to capacity issues, F&B and ticketing, we're going to try and get to as much as we can in our short time. We won't get to it all. Um, but we'll look especially at how they've responded to changing mandatory restrictions in response to COVID-19. Some Australian resorts had to close for the season. Some on our panel are experiencing many operational wins, um, in, according to them, um, with better results than anticipated. And in New Zealand, they started the season at a level one enjoyed a long period of no COVID cases, but recently had to switch to a level two. So um, we want to know how that impacted their operations, their staff. How did they convey the mid-season change to customers? Um, These are things we're all going to be experiencing uh, this season. So um, their insights are invaluable. Can't thank them enough for joining us here um, this morning, today. Um, there is much we can learn from their experience, so let's get started. We're pleased to have on our panel uh, a great representation of operators from New Zealand and Australia. We have uh, Peter Sontag um, of Vail Resorts, a senior VP and COO for the Western Region and Australia. Uh, Bridget Legnavsky, who is the GM of Cardrona, uh, Treble Cone, New Zealand. And Stuart Diver, who is the GM of Threadbow, Australia and Paul Anderson, who is the CEO of NZ Ski Limited, which represents Mount Hutt, The Remarkables, and Coronet Peak in New Zealand. And we're gonna start um, with Pete Sontag. So um, Pete, as I said, you're Vail Resort Senior VP and COO for the Western Region in Australia. Um, as you, we all know, in case we don't, Australia, uh, Vail owns um, two resorts in Victoria, Mount Hotham and Falls Creek, and then Persher in New South Wales. Um, and what we're most curious about, you know, we've seen the letter from Rob that um, Rob Katz, CEO of Vail Resorts, that he um, said that they're um, going to be gathering intel from the Southern Hemisphere, and hopefully that can help inform things for us in North America. You know, obviously it's it's still early days, and um, many North American resorts, and I'm sure Vail included, still don't know yet what our plan, our final plans are, but. Um, hoping you can share some of the operational wins that you've had at Perisher um, because the other two did have to close down. We all saw in the news, but um, what can you tell us about some of the wins and some of the challenges um, that you're, you're able to kind of look with hindsight and with a, a look back to a season that we don't quite have that insight. What, what can you share with us? Yeah, awesome. Uh, thanks. And thanks for the opportunity to be on. I appreciate it. And uh, hey, everybody, uh, good to, to be here with you. Um, yeah, I'll just I'll share up front. Um, you know, we, we did a little bit of a restructure in our company in the fall. And so I came into this role actually um, at the beginning of October, uh, having come down from Whistler Blackcomb most recently. And uh, the, the ironic part is uh, I, I taught a year of skiing in Threadbow in 1992 and never went to Paris or never really went anywhere else in Australia during that time. And here I found myself with responsibility over our three Australian resorts. Um, and I had I had travel planned to go down there. And of course, that never happened. So it's, you know, it's it's been a really, you know, fascinating and challenging learning curve for me trying to get up to speed on our three resorts down there uh, without having been there in person. And I would just say, you know, much like we're, we're seeing on this call here, you know, we use Microsoft Teams, but very similar to Zoom. Um, the ability to connect regularly and, you know, um, with faces 
has been, you know, unbelievably valuable for us. So just, you know, this sense of actually being, you know, feeling closer together than we ever have uh, with our three resorts on the other side of the world and and the people who work there uh, has been, yeah, just amazing. So, you know, I guess high level to answer your question. I mean, we really, you know, we came at this with a, a totally safety first approach and, and we've really tried to maintain that through all this. And I, I just, I feel like there, there can be so much noise out there about, you know, what's important. I feel like I, I regularly find myself being challenged of, well, we've always done things and kind of having to switch my mindset of, no, we actually have to kind of go at this with a, you know, what, what is the safest approach we could take? And then how do we make that work, you know, within the operation? And that's really the approach we took to, you know, getting the season going down um, in Australia was that safety first, working with health agencies and government officials on. So, you know, incorporating all that guidance into a ski operation. And so that that was, you know, an amazing amount of work between us and the team down there. Pete Rulisauer is our chief operating officer over Parisher and then also oversees Hotham and False Creek. And, you know, the the team has been awesome. So among all other things, I just, I do want to give a huge shout out to our team for all the work they've been doing, um, how open-minded they've been to incorporate, you know, the thinking that we have as a company into how they're running their operations down there. And I think at the end, it led to a pretty good place where, yeah, it's, it's absolutely different. Um, but it's, it's actually worked pretty well. And, And I would say, you know, to layer on top of that, it's the worst start to the season in 20 to 25 years down there from weather and snow conditions. So you just had that, you know, building, um, you know, upon the challenge that we already had going into the season. Um, for sure, we had to think about, and, and I would say, you know, this is one of the biggest watchouts for our coming season up here in North America is, you know, thinking about how you actually get the season started when you don't have the full mountain and you don't have ideal snow conditions, uh, how do you manage that experience and still stay true to um, the safety first mindset? So, you know, a lot went with that. Um, And then I I guess the last piece, and then, you know, I'm sure you'll have follow-up questions, is we really focused on our pass holders and, you know, the people who we consider our most loyal guests. We wanted to make sure that they're getting, you know, our highest priority. And so, you know, a lot of decisions were made based on that. And I know, you know, others made other decisions, totally respect that. But for us, we felt like, you know, we've worked so hard to build up the past program, build loyalty amongst our guests. Uh, Now is the perfect time to kind of show that in return. So that really came through as well. Great. And that kind of leads me to a question. Um, So, yeah, you you guys took the approach of, um, well, just reading from your website, guests with an Epic Australia pass, Epic pass or Epic military pass, um, are, well, are no longer required to make pass access reservations to visit Parisher. Um, so at the start, just take us through how that worked at the start, they did have to register mm-hmm. and now they don't. Um, and, and how does that work? If you don't make reservations, how do you manage capacity? If, season pass holders don't, they can just show up. So that, that would be one question. Yeah, for sure. So that, you know, that's something that, that changed over time as we were able to get more of the mountain open. So as we started off, we had practically nothing. And with that, you know, there's, even though you know your visitation is naturally going to be down, it's still going to be at a level that we felt like, okay, how are we going to maintain distancing in the small areas that we do have operating? So that was clearly a choice that we had to make was to require reservations, both for pass holders and for ticket purchasers. Uh, as we were able to open more of the mountain, then you know, then it's a calculation of, okay, what do you normally see on a day like this? What is kind of the maximum number of guests you might uh, see on a certain day? What's the breakdown between pass holders and ticket purchasers? And then you know, you do that calculation. And ultimately, we got to a place where Given the amount of terrain we had, we felt comfortable we could take all pass holders. And and what has been the percentage? Do you have a sense of how many pass holders to um, day tickets 
that you're saying. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty healthy number in in each bucket. And but again, I mean, pass holders will always come first for us. And so, you know, we wouldn't go out and, and sell tickets if we knew that pass holders were not going to be able to have access to the mountain. And how do you release the day tickets? Is it, do you set like a daily limit to the amount of day tickets mm-hmm. based on a guess of how many season pass holders? How, how, do, how does one navigate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think there are a lot of different ways you could go about it. You know, we've, we've done it in a kind of a series of releases one thing for sure, you know, to note about Australia um, is, and I think this probably applies for New Zealand as well, is how volatile the weather is. And so you can get a lot of wind, you can get, you know, uh, a lot of snow when it does come, and it can be wet snow at times. So, you know, I'm sure some of you are familiar with those types of conditions. And, you know, you get into scenarios where you may not be able to operate all your lifts. And so that that affects, you know, the, the footprint or the capacity of the mountain. And so, you know, you want to be looking out at the weather, long, long range forecast. And if there's any question in your mind that you may have some weather coming in, then you may want to, you know, think hard about how much capacity or inventory you're going to release on any given day. Okay. And then um, on ski and ride school, um, you offered lessons to adults and kids and privates. And how did that pan out? Were there, was there more demand for privates, more demand? Were people comfortable with the group lessons that you offered? Did you sell out of those? Yeah, ski schools, a, it's a challenge for sure. Um, you know, one thing for sure in Australia was a big component of the ski school business down there are school groups. And the school groups canceled, you know, before the season even started. So that was a, you know, that was a pretty big chunk of our, what would traditionally be uh, our business that wasn't there. And so it, it did shift the, you know, the overall uh, makeup. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you can expect a lot of people are just wanting to come and ski. And, you know, and I think we're actually, you know, we've been really encouraging that um, more than ever uh, of having people drive up, put their boots on at their car, go straight to the lift, bring their lunch, um, go and go and have a great time up on the mountain and, you know, kind of naturally have, have less interaction with our staff and with each other than they normally would. And that's just one of the realities that we're faced with. Great. Um, any lesson learned that, that you would share with operators on this call? One, a, a- yeah, I mean, I, I, there's there's tons. We're we're still we're still kind of making the list, but you know, just as an example of of one thing that that we did was we managed the flow of traffic into the resort um, because what we didn't want to have happen was uh, to have you know everybody show up in a thirty minute window, boot up at the same time, and arrive at the lift at the exact same time. So we actually went out and and put our parking staff out in the middle of the road. And we would actually slow traffic down. And it was one of those things. We told people we were going to do it. Um, didn't, didn't expect a, an awesome reaction to it. Um, but I, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't bad. I think it, it surprised us how quickly people understood why we were doing what we were doing. And incredibly effective, right? You know, you just slow that traffic down a little bit. And so the pacing of people actually showing up to the base area lifts was way more manageable. And so, you know, I think those are, that's one small example. And I think you, you know, we're all going to come up with lots of others that are specific to, you know, the unique qualities of, of the resorts where we operate. Um, but that one, that one worked really well. What did you do for the guests on the mountain when the weather turned bad and you can't take them inside with capacity issues? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, as I said, I think you, you want to avoid this situation as much as you possibly can um, by being super proactive and proactive even up to the day of when you, you know, like you're rarely surprised by a big storm. Um, sometimes the wind will kick up more than you're expecting um, or the intensity is a little bit more, but you generally know when you're going to have um, weather that could disrupt operations. and 
So even the day of, like, sure that everybody is aware of that and knows that, hey, we may be in a situation where we're going to have to shut down some lifts. Uh, we don't have enough room to take everybody into our buildings. We never do anyway, even, even under non-COVID, um, but certainly right now. So if the weather does turn, you need to make a plan. And the plan may need to be you get off the mountain and you go back to your car and your day's done or you wait it out for a little bit. Um, but really helping people with their planning, I think, is, is one of the most important things that we can do as, as operators. Uh, give them, you know, consistent and clear information. Don't hold back on the bad news uh, because the bad news is is actually exactly what they need. Sometimes they need to know what's happening. You know, we've we've taken out sugar coating of pretty much all messaging. Um, that's not not what our industry needs right now. We just need straightforward, honest communication, and I think most people get it and will respond appropriately. Great. Thanks, Pete. Well, might come back to you with some questions, but um, let's move to um, Stuart Diver, who's the GM at Threadbow. So Stuart, when I reached out to you um, to join this call, you said um, definitely a challenging winter, but we've had many operational wins so far and our season in Threadbow is going way better than anticipated. So um, just ex explain um, a little bit about the wins and then some of the unexpected challenges that um, you're experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just to sort of preface it, we worked obviously really closely uh, with Perisher and with the Victorian resorts to get our plan up and get operational. I think that was really a, a, a great industry first down here to get every resort together and work so closely uh, on that plan. Um, and then obviously, as uh, Peter said, there's uh, there's numerous ways to go around it, but uh, to limit the capacity, um, we took a different approach. Um, we refunded in entirety uh, all of our season pass holders. Um, we gave them their money back prior to the season opening. Uh, we believe that we were unable to safely control capacity by just allowing season pass holders to turn up. Uh, and if we were going to restrict their access, then we weren't actually, uh, it wasn't actually a season pass uh, because season pass holders obviously buy their season pass so they can ski whenever they want. So we took the operational decision that the best way to uh, control capacity was to, to sell day passes uh, into the market. Uh, to look after the loyalty um, of our season pass holders, we had a heavily discounted uh, offering for them. So we had a normal day pass ticket for everyone else and then we had a season pass day ticket which was uh, discounted up to 75% off the uh off the normal uh day rate um and so that appeased our season pass holders that's worked uh, really well for us uh throughout the season because people have had surety on when they've been able to come so they've been able to book accommodation so we released our entire season's inventory uh at the before the season opened uh we sold it pretty well all in two days uh, we've added to that a little bit uh, as conditions have allowed and we've been able to open up more runs but basically we wanted to go into the marketplace and give the market absolute certainty accommodation providers everyone in Threadbo we've got four and a half thousand beds uh, just in Threadbo itself we wanted to make sure that their guests knew that they could come in August at the end of August so we released all of that that gave us some issues in our online store because we had uh, 38,000 people trying to buy tickets uh, at, at one time so that was uh, de definitely not a highlight. That was definitely a massive challenge for us. But once we got through those uh, that hectic first 24 hours, um, yeah, the model has worked really, really well for us. And as we've got more snow, we've opened more terrain, we've seen how the plan has worked and we've been able to manage social distancing, we were then able to uh, to release more tickets into the market. So that, that as an overall thing, worked really well for us. Obviously, the same constraints that uh, you know, the other resorts have got. It's really about buildings, um, lift lines to a degree, and we manage those by having single files so that everyone's uh, 1.5 metres apart as we had to be uh, in the Australian resorts. But the challenge was always going to be... Uh, can you feed people on the mountain? So the F&B venues uh, and also so you can provide them with a level of service they expect when they come to the mountains. Uh, and then on the back of that, um, do you have 
the capacity around the base areas, so where everyone comes into the resort, especially in mornings, to be able to cope with that morning rush. And that's how we gauged uh, how many people we could have. And it's worked really, really well. It's relied hugely on staff training. And what we uh, did, our team, my team down here has been amazing. We have you know, over a 1,000 staff and we're you know, two-thirds through the season now. And they've just been incredible in how they've communicated with guests helped guests and really made sure that the message is out there that, you know, safety is the first thing uh, on our minds in Threadbow and then hopefully uh, we can get out and enjoy the snow. Um, a big challenge obviously has been the weather. Um, the same as uh, what Peter said, you know, looking at uh, the weather with a forward view, but also being able to react really quickly on the day. So what we had was we informed our guests that if it was going to be a wind hold day, so i.e. the majority of the lifts were going to be on wind hold or all of the lifts were going to be in wind hold, we would make the call at 7am on that day. We would SMS uh, every guest who'd purchased the ticket that day and tell them that their ticket for the day had been refunded. So don't bother coming up to the resort. So we stopped people. We didn't allow them to come into the resort. We've only had to do it one day this season, but that was a really proactive way of making sure that the guests were happy because they got their money back uh, and we were able to manage the safety because we knew if we got the full number of people up onto the mountain, they'd either be crammed around the base areas or they'd be in our buildings and we wouldn't be able to manage that crowd. So that was a, a really proactive way of, of managing that and moving forward. So, yeah, it's been a, a big season. And I think if you if you look at you know, uh, snow sports, just to touch on that, you know, we children's snow sports school, all of those areas which were going to be really hard to control, uh, little children and social distancing, we just cancelled for the season. So our snow sports model was private lessons only. Uh, and then we said when we saw how that operated, then we'd move out to a to a smaller group uh, lesson offering. So we moved to group lessons with a maximum of five in each lesson. And that's been our only offering in snow sports. Uh, that's also been very successful because we had the issue uh, over here that we couldn't access the normal amount of instructors that we had because a lot of the overseas instructors couldn't get here, uh, obviously. So we had a reduced number of instructors. So we had to take that into account. How are we going to be able to teach uh, within our capacity and, and manage those areas and yet still uh, have enough instructors to teach. And so that's where, you know, obviously privates and limited group lessons uh, worked well in that. But across the board, it's been, you know, the, the customers who have been able to get here and go skiing have had an amazing time because they've felt safe. Um, our revenue streams uh, have been way better than we thought they were going to be. Obviously, um, when you reduce your capacity by, you know, over 50%, um, you know, especially in the limited snow areas, we definitely thought we'd take a way bigger hit than we have. So that's been a, a real upside for us. And I think that was definitely based on uh, the ability to sell uh, day passes, even hugely discounted day passes into the market uh, was a big win for us. Um. Tell me a little bit about the ski and ride school. So I know you've got the privates and you got the max five, which you, how young do you go on that max five product? Did those sell out quickly? Was there a lot of interest in the group and not a lot? Yeah. So it was, yeah. Yeah. So it was all inventory managed, obviously. So we just, yeah, we had a percentage and it, it, in the beginning it was hundred percent privates. Then it went to about 80% privates, 20% uh, max five. And that's sort of where it's sitting at the moment, but we could definitely sell a lot. There is demand there for the group lesson, obviously, because it's at a lower price point. Um, but uh, in saying that, uh, yeah, it's still sitting at about 70% privates and 30% uh, a split uh, for the Max 5 group lesson. But, yeah, there, there is always demand, as every resort has, for those for those group-style uh, group lessons at that lower price point. And how is rental going? Have you encountered some challenges with that and getting people through that? With all the yeah, rental was the same one. So what we did was we uh, you had to book a time to come through our rental. Uh, we could only fit a hundred people in the rental. So as we we basically everything was sold online pre-purchased. You cannot arrive in the resort unless you've bought an online day pass, online rental, or an online lesson. Uh, and so therefore, we every hundred percent of products that we sold were sold online. So we knew exactly who was coming. We, through our inventory pools, were able to control, uh, yeah, the times that they arrived. And basically, it was just an education process. They got sent, you know, pre-arrival emails. And then on the morning or the evening that they were arriving, they got sent another reminder of which rental they 
shop they were meant to go to and then from there what time they were meant to arrive at. So that was how we controlled the numbers. And then obviously the hygiene and sanitisation, we had uh, fogging machines, which are like those misting machines. So everything as it comes back, through the returns we had to sort of shift the way that the building ran uh everything gets fogged gets set up on the shelf can't be used for 15 minutes gets turned around so it was all about making sure that that was clean and it was also making sure that especially boot fitting was it was a really big one uh for protecting the staff because obviously they're down trying to fit boots staff are uh, guests are, are breathing uh on them it's rather close so we ended up putting big plastic screens uh up in all of our rental areas and then the guests would sit behind the screen but you could still access uh their feet and fit the boots so the whole lot of little things that we did to to get around that to make sure that um yeah the the guests but more importantly our staff felt safe Stuart, this is Rick Call from, from Sam. Uh, a couple of questions for you. Uh, what percentage of people who bought a ticket or bought a lesson didn't show up? And what, if anything, did you do for those people? So if they chose not to show up, that's just like a normal, normal ski day. There's no refund or no credit. Um, if there were people who were unable to get here. Uh, so, yeah, obviously the borders started to close down for the other states as the season went on. Then our policy was a full refund. So if someone had uh, any symptoms of COVID-19, if they'd been tested for COVID-19, we told them not to come and we refunded their, their money straight away. And we were very liberal with that. Um, the, the, the normal breakage on a day uh, was about 10% of people uh, didn't come, um, but that in a lot of ways was due to the, the snow this season and the weather. Um, but overall, the majority of people who could turn up, turned up. And did it, did it find that it was um, evened out? This is one of the questions I think is interesting. Um, did you experience an evening out of visits from weekend to midweek that maybe you hadn't seen before? Just Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because because you're restricting the weekends, which are normally busy, it's actually a a really, you know, the the capacity constraint model has some has some upsides to it. And that is that for staffing levels, you're just skiing that same number of people every day of the week. So therefore, there's not this mad rush on the weekend and the whole resort gets uh, overrun and you you have all of those issues. So the experience for guests and for staff is was actually a really has been a really, really positive one because it's just the same every day. It's the same number of people uh you can always get a car park you can you know the food and beverage venues you definitely had to wait for um just because of the capacity constraints to get in but you know everyone on the hill mountain was was able to get fed uh we have you know we control 15 food and beverage venues ourselves so we've got you know quite large capacity in that so we just moved people around through those venues told them if one was busier that the other one was quieter and they could go across there so the the guest experience has actually been um has but the feedback has been phenomenal this season for the people who've been, obviously been able to get down here and have a ticket did they have to do anything special for fmb did they have to reserve to get a spot inside did you do more outdoor cooking like what what did you do for the fmb yeah, de- definitely the the takeaway options are way bigger because under the guidelines that we had, um, obviously the the seating uh, inside was very limited in some um, some places. So yeah, we basically had planned very prior to the season opening that we were going to have F and B offerings even in our more premium places. So you could go along to those, you could get a can of beer, you could get etc. You could go outside, you could sit in the trees, you could find your own space uh, and do that, which obviously works well when the weather's good, um, but is not so good when the when the weather's uh, not so good. So yeah, but F and B was probably our biggest constraint um, in being able to make sure that guests, you know, could be fed. And, and it's really about the guest experience as well. You know, we're trying to make sure that, you know, they still have that premium experience because you don't want to be charging them to come down. They're still paying pretty well full price for their accommodation, all of those things. And if they get down here and, and can't get a meal or can't go out to a bar like they normally expected to, um, then it's, they're not really getting that experience. So, you know, it was, it was all about the skiing and the snowboarding and being able to go for a ride. But in Threadbar, we really, we wanted to focus on making sure they had that uh, overarching experience as well. Great. One last question before we move on to New Zealand. Um, retail, did that um, surprise you? Uh, yep. Yeah. Did, did that- Re- retail was amazing. Like retail is am- so our retail um, is above prior year on half the, obviously on half the capacity, which is pretty incredible. So in Australia, there's, there, there were 
a number of government um, subsidies or handouts that came out. Um, I think that, you know, that helped us. Uh, people had a little bit of extra cash to spare. Um, also, people, Australians haven't been able to travel. They've, a lot of them missed out on their North American ski trip this year or their Japan ski trip. They haven't really been able to go anywhere. You, now in New South Wales, you can't go to either Queensland or Victoria because the borders are closed. So when they come down here, they've got that money for those discretionary spends. Um, and, yeah, so that was – and, and I I think that's flowed through in our numbers, definitely through food and beverage. Um, but re retail was the really surprising one that, uh, and, and even in rental, um, we have three three tiers of rental, and the rental we were selling out of every day was the premium rental, so the highest price one. Um, and we, you know, stories of beginner skiers coming into the resort who would normally rent their clothing. We didn't rent any clothing this year, and they would go to shops and buy two and a half thousand dollar ski suits. And they'd never skied before. So the market really, really changed with wow. that, you know, higher yielding customer really coming to the fore rather than, you know, that obviously the, the um, you know, the, the, the normal customer, like your school groups, um, the season pass holders who, you know, spread their discretionary spend out of the, across the whole season. People are coming for four days and they're spending everything they have in those four or five days. So, you know, that was a real um, eye opener for us and, you know, something that was very positive. Stuart, did you um, did you test your staff, or how, how did you deal with staff in terms of COVID testing? Did you have any outbreaks or anything like that? If you did, how did you handle those? Yes, I mean we obviously planned that we were going to have some, but uh, touch wood, we haven't had any yet. Um, really closely managing our staffs that as they sign in in the morning, they have to check in with their thumbprint as they came in. They had to also press another button that said, "I am uh, fit." Uh, and healthy and ready to come to work. Anyone who had any symptoms, we would pay for them. They could go home, they could get a test. If the test took one, two, three days, we would um, pay them to sit at home uh, and wait for the results to come back. Uh, if anyone had um, had COVID and had to be isolated, then we were going to pay them for the 14 days that they had to be isolated as well. So we were proactive in saying, if you are sick, do not come to work. Uh, we also had a huge amount of face masks on hand um, for our, you know, the forward-facing staff to make sure that if if they wanted to, we didn't make it mandatory, but if they wanted to, uh, they could wear face masks in those areas. About 15% of our staff have taken up that offer um, which was yeah, which was good, but yeah, we haven't given given the volume and the tens of thousands of people that we're bringing in from all over the state uh, to this area. I must admit I'm very surprised that we haven't had an outbreak, um, but I'm also very pleased because it obviously shows that our sanitisation plans, the hygiene of our staff, the social distancing, all of those things, and all of that hard work that we put in early uh, has uh, has definitely paid off. And it's things like you know we we have these fogging machines, so we've got a, a gondola so we yeah we fog the gondolas twice a day full interior they sit there you know they every, all the lifts uh infrastructure as in touch points on chairs etc uh get sanitized overnight um yeah there's a whole lot of things we're doing we've got more um hand sanitizer outlets around this resort you know than i've ever ever seen and it's um and it's amazing guests are using them and they're they're doing it and staff are doing it. you know if staff have to touch a child to to load them on the chair the first thing they do is go over to the sanitizer bucket do their hands make sure that they're clean for the next guest coming through so it really relies hugely on staff staff education and also really educating the guests and we went out with a huge social media campaign um on with a whole lot of funny video clips on you know how to practice social distancing in Threadbow, what it's all about and really educate the guests because they're coming in they want to have a good time they're used to partying and doing whatever you're doing ski resorts and um yeah we really have to say to them this is different and we need you to help us out uh, otherwise we are going to have an outbreak and if we have an outbreak you know there's a big chance uh that they'll that they would shut us down so hopefully um we can keep going for the next five weeks or so and we will uh we won't have any 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 cases Great. Thanks so much, Stuart. Really great insights there. Appreciate that. We'll get back to the conversation after this message from PodSAM partner Aspenware. Aspenware helps you modernize your mountain, providing e-commerce that enhances the guest experience. Aspenware's easy-to-use, mobile-optimized shopping experience integrated to your resort point of sale will increase online sales. Aspenware Commerce natively supports passholder reservations and daily inventory with direct-to-lift capabilities. 
Aspenware is also proud to introduce Aspenware Arrival, online check-in for the ski industry. Arrival captures required fulfillment information in advance, decreasing fulfillment lines and providing a contactless experience for your guests. Visit www.aspenware.com for more information. www.aspenware.com Let's move over to New Zealand and talk to uh, Paul and Bridget. Um, Bridget, I'm going to start with you, GM of Cardona and Treble uh, Cone in New Zealand. You started um, preparing your season for level two and then got the last minute green light to move to level one before opening day. And now um, back to level two. Um, and I imagine it's a tricky time for staff and guests as you're switching back and forth, you know, on a dime here. And um, I wanted to play a little video um, of a communication that you put out when you had just learned you're going to a level two. And, you know, as operators here sort of figure out how the tone of their messaging and how they say things, you know, is there humor? Is there serious? Is it transparent, honest, you know, share the bad news as Pete had said it earlier. I thought this was a great example. So um, I'm just going to share a little, little clip of this. You can view this video by visiting www.sameinfo.com slash huddle. So basically, um, Bridget, I wanted to just say, you know, your honesty in your approach and your honesty in your messaging messages of treating your car like your mini little lodge and reminding people not to bring their bags in and stow them. Just a, a, a realistic, you know, we're moving to level two and um, and here are the things that we can't do for you anymore. But you you ended it with remember to be be kind and be patient. And it, it was a really well done, you know, um, video. So um, what I wanted to ask you was, you know, take us a little bit through um, that transition, because I'm sure North American operators are going to be going through state by state, you know, on again, off again, restrictions changing and guidelines and capacity changes, and they're going to have to have this, you know, mid-season changes, and the staff are going to have to buy into it, and the customers. And so how did you quickly switch from level one, which you enjoyed for so long, to level two, and how did that go? Um, it's really good that you're doing this huddle because I think um, I think there's a great opportunity to look at what has happened and I probably can go back to where it started for me. I was um, in Europe in March um, when COVID took off so by the time I could see what was happening over there and I was um, working with a lot of resorts there came home and kind of the penny dropped really early for us in New Zealand. We're like, right, we might not be open. And I think that's really nice that you can see that here and you can be prepared for it. So um, we were pretty honest straight away. If you look back at some of the clips from um, when we first went into level two in New Zealand, you'll see us straight away being able to say, look, this is you know not good. This is real, and we are going to have to be working through this. But what we what we really got, which helped a lot, and you know, I, uh, you know, I feel very privileged for this, is that our government gave us great leadership, and you know, we're one country, and um, we we kind of work really closely together. So we don't have the regional so much of the regional issues until actually now, which is a bit different. But we got given four levels um, of alert levels in New Zealand, and people are probably really familiar with those. But incredible leadership with those because they're very specific. So we were able to align our scenarios with those and. At that point, we were sort of we went straight to level four quite quickly in New Zealand, so we locked the whole country down, as everybody's probably aware. And we started to look as to see whether we could open in level three, and it took us a while to go, nah, that's not just going to be possible. But we looked at level two and went, we can open. But there were some major issues in the level two um, restrictions that could have closed us. So, and it's great to have Paul here too. Paul and Jono and myself work really closely together on building um, a set of operating protocols for level two, so thoroughly with level two, so that we knew exactly how we could open. And then we had to go through the process of having government essentially accept those levels. And I know Paul's already talked to you a little bit about that, so I won't go on about that. Um, but that was a great process and it was, it was really good to see Australia did a similar thing together because it was, um, when you go in as a whole industry to government, it's a much easier way to get an answer. So we were stoked to see that we could open in level two. Um, so we prepared for it 
really we prepared to go into the season as level two and like you said Olivia we actually got back to level one um it was an interesting startup for us because the first thing was to look at capacity and how many numbers we would expect and um Paul you may be a little bit different to me but we went in expecting about a 50 percent business level because generally 40 percent of our business is Australians and about 10 plus percent is international so we went okay 50 percent and we staffed for that <clears throat> and um we got some wins at the end or just before we opened with it or the government bringing it or just as we were prepping with the government bringing out um, wage subsidies. I don't know if the rest of you have had that. But once those wage subsidies got in, that was about um, the wage subsidies were there to keep people in employment. So it allowed us to hire quite a few more people than we first started, which was pretty lucky. Um, but we did focus very closely on our fixed costs, what we really had to open, um, and, and really focused on um, opening the whole resort and what that would cost. And then things that were more variable, for example, and there's been a lot of questions around ski and snowboard school, we kept a little bit more um, limited, knowing that we were thinking at that stage we would have 50% of our market. So in July when we opened, we were in level one, which was pretty unrestricted in New Zealand. Um, there was um, not much we really had to do. Um, we were contact tracing, obviously, anyway, with our um, RFID system. But it, it, the whole of New Zealand was able to travel freely. Um, and we got quite surprised. Um, in July school holidays, we had our busiest July school holidays ever in the second week. So I think um, what, what that meant for us is the New Zealand economy is really strong. New Zealand was surviving really well. We expected there to be more downturn in the economy. Um, but also probably a bit of a surprise at how many New Zealanders travel overseas and spend their money overseas and, and when they couldn't, they're going to come and look after their own country. So that was pretty amazing. And like Stu said, lots of high spend, um, re really quite surprising. Um, and I think there were some really interesting things for us through that process because um, some of you will realise that we brought Cardrona bought Travel Cone last year, so we opened up a brand new resort and it was almost blinded because generally we would have had community kind of questioning our moves and what we were doing and everything like that, but everybody in the community was so appreciative and so tolerant um, of just getting open and, and being so happy because clearly the easier thing for us to do would have been to keep TC closed, but we made a decision to go for it and keep it open with a real focus on those fixed costs and what we would need to open there. And, and a lot of that um, tolerance and appreciation, I think, did come out of the comms because we just kept updating and kept the truth going and kept, you know, being really open with it. I mean, even moving our start date to the season back two or three weeks didn't even get any kickback. So got no kickback. It was quite incredible. And I think everyone will see that appreciation, which has been awesome. I think time's changing now a little bit. So as we, um, I might add in July, we also got our record snowfall, which was incredible. And then we moved into August and we had our record worst snowfall of the year, so ever. <laughs> so we've had a, um, all sorts of crazy things going. But when we got into August, obviously we went into level two very fast. So um, at 9.15 at night, we found out we were moving into level two at lunchtime the next day. <clears throat> so Paul and I were talking that night together and um, just talking together to work out what we were doing. We actually um, decided to close the following day to prep, even though we knew what to do, but we just, it, um, the, the day the day of going to level two, we had a lot of people. It was a high capacity day at Cadrona, lots of people very close to each other. So we had to go in and work out how we were gonna keep people distant. So moving, um, moving which is really a question, was really tricky. Um, it took a, took a day of really hard work to prep the areas, to prep the distancing specifically, to get all of our contact tracing apps up to ensure that we were going to get the messaging out. Um, we divided all of our CAFs into pieces because so, each, each indoor area can take 100 people or um, at least a metre apart if they're contact traced. So the contact tracing in New Zealand means if you are contact tracing, people can get down to a metre. If you're not contact tracing, it's two metres. Um, and, and it's a little bit um, it, it's a little bit variable there, but that's basically the content. Um, we had to take a really good look at how we would handle the lifts, how we would load the lifts and separating people on the lifts. Um, we had to understand what close contact meant. So whenever you're um, within a meter from a person for some time and the equipment required to go into close contact. So the areas that were closely looked at there was obviously patrol and medical and also boot fitting and rental. 
and there was more equipment needed for those places. We had to get the cleaning going and that all moved quite quickly and then we got open. But we really had to get um, our guests on our side because you do need to make sure that your guests take responsibility for themselves and that's really important. Um, we struggled a little bit the first few days because we still had our market here, our full market here. So there was um, lots of really long single queues uh, outside areas and it was really stressful for the staff. But slowly over time um, that petered off because Aucklanders returned home and then no more Aucklanders could come down. So Auckland's about 30% of our market. When we went into level two, Auckland went into level three, so they weren't allowed to leave Auckland. So that market sort of organically dropped off anyway. One thing that we're really finding is that there's a really fine line between being overcautious and then too loose that it's a bit stressful. So, um, and every single staff member feels differently about it. So there's got to be some real individuality with how you treat and work with the staff and give them the option to wear masks, like we've said, um, to feel safe, to redeploy them if they don't feel safe. Um, for example, a really good example is we had some lifties that were uncomfortable touching kids to help them on the lifts. So we just had to redeploy those staff until they felt comfortable because um, the 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 um, information around close contact is you have to be in close contact for about 15 minutes before you're considered really close contact. With ski and snowboard schools, there's been a lot of question about that. We follow the Ministry of Education guidelines around um, because all of our schools are still open, so we're treating the ski and snowboard school very much like a high uh, a primary school or early childhood centre. So we have them all still open, following the guidelines of those um, Ministry of Education guidelines so um, yep we're operating in level two we were hoping that we would come back out of it but instead what's happened is we're taking Auckland down to level two on Sunday which means that Aucklanders will be able to travel back into the south so the theory is that we get Auckland back but we stay in level two the other option was I guess for Auckland to stay in level three and us to go to level one which um Financially, economically, it's great because we'll get that business back, but it's going to be highly stressful if we get an influx of Aucklanders and we will have to look at um, restricting, um, restricting people onto the resorts. We have been doing a little bit of that lately. Um, one of the things we struggled with in July was the traffic because New Zealanders all drive cars, so they don't use public transport. So we had more traffic than we've ever seen before. Um, I love the idea of um, slowing it down, but we couldn't slow it down because uh, entries to the skiing resorts are main highways. So we block, can't block the main highway. So we had to, um, dealing with that was really tricky too. I'll probably stop there and let people ask questions because I could talk forever. Well, what I'll do is I'm going to bring Paul uh, into the conversation um, just because I know you guys do work together as, as well in, in figuring out how to navigate the, the change in the, the, uh, the levels. Um, so Paul Anderson, CEO, NZ Ski Limited, um, which is Mount Hutt, The Remarkables, and Coronet Peak. Paul shared a deck of images for signage at his resorts. You can view this deck at www.saminfo.com huddle. Just to um, to reiterate some of what Bridge said, I think one of the most important things we've done in New Zealand is worked really closely together as an industry. And it's been really critical for our success, um, just, just having a united front, making sure we're interpreting guidelines consistently. Um, and even after we've gone into some of these levels, Bridge and I, or John and I, have, have chatted together just saying, hey, what are you doing with this or that? And it just it gives a little bit of comfort when you know um, some of your colleagues are facing some of the same challenges. And also it gives you comfort that you're dealing with them in a consistent way. Um, one of the things for us going, when we started at level one, um, I think it was one of the best days I've had in this industry, seeing how grateful our guests were to be there on opening day at level one. And the really cool thing that I saw were guests going up to lifties and, and patrollers and just saying thanks for being open. Um, it, was, it was just awesome to see the staff get so much credit for the work we'd done to get open. So that was one of the nice things, I suppose, that came out of the early time. So the biggest challenge, I think, for us, um, as Bridge said, has been moving from our level one to level two. 
in such a fast time. And we kind of set ourselves up for that by um, doing that hard yards back in March or April and establishing these level two protocols. Um, so the slide that we're on now is just a, a clip from our website. And like, like um, what Bridget said, it's, it's just critical you set the expectations with your guests and your staff and um, make sure you just constantly communicate. That little clip was just a, a brief thing we put together on social media to remind people of the of the core principles. And I always try and make things um, easy for my small brain to understand. So I've just, um, I've just had three things in mind all the way through our alert levels. One is how do we manage physical distancing? The second one is how do we manage contact tracing? And the third one is um, what are our cleaning and, cleaning and hygiene protocols? So with those three things, we can look at our government guidance for each level and then apply that to each of our departments and then communicate it to our guests and uh, staff. And that's been our reasonably simple approach to this. It's really just preserving, it's more communication than being really rigid on where you have to stand and so on, but it's that those constant um, visual reminders to staff and guests that, hey, this isn't normal. Uh, we're operating under a level two alert system. So asking guests and setting up the environment for guests to self-manage themselves. Um, one of the things Bridget, talked about was um, the way different staff react to these situations and that's been that for me has been really fascinating and I, I just encourage everyone to be really patient and um, and communicative with your staff and I guess understanding or empathetic to the way different people feel um, I've had times where I've you know I've kind of thought oh for heaven's sake let's just get on with it but you do need to be patient and, and allow people to come on their journey. As Bridge said, if people aren't comfortable doing a certain job, give them the opportunity to move away from that job, watch while someone else might be comfortable doing it and, um, and then learn and hopefully they move back. So by, by just giving a little bit of leeway to staff and understanding their um, sensitivities, we've been able to manage our way through that. But staff anxiety is a real issue that you need to deal with. Um, and the best way I've found is just by being patient, understanding and empathetic and encouraging your whole leadership team to um, be like that. And it's, it's far easier said than done because in the heat of a moment when you're trying to, um, when you're trying to do something like, as we did transition to level two in a day, um, I know we've so three different resorts. We've got three different leadership styles in each of those resorts. Um, one of our resorts kind of took too long getting their um, leadership team across the line as to how we were going to operate. And kind of, I feel like we shortchanged our staff and briefing them. Um, so you, know, you, you learn as you go. And I think we needed to really get that leadership team across the line earlier and then get them to empower their staff to set up the different zones. Um, this, is a, this is an example of the zone system we set up on our resort. So green, orange, and red zones. Um, and this was, we developed this when we developed the guidelines. Um, green zones being two meter social distancing, um, no contact tracing in those areas. Orange zones, you can reduce the spacing to a meter and we've got contact tracing in place there. And red zones are largely staff back of house or um, indoor licensed areas where we were limited to 100 um, seats. Everybody's wearing masks, right, inside. Is that required? No, no, it's not. Um, that was, we probably had about... 40% uh, of our staff wearing masks inside and a lesser percentage of our guests wearing, wearing masks. Um, masks are not mandatory in New Zealand. They've only just been mandatory, made mandatory yesterday on public transport. So um, that, that will, again, change one of our protocols there. We had uh, a government contact tracing app. That's that QR code on the on the door there to allow people to um, to scan in. And we also created takeaway zones in our restaurants to allow people to come in and take away food to the outside areas where they could um, more safely sit. 
because in the inside zones, we had to manage to just 100 seats. One of the departments that I thought um, that, that they believed that their job was going to be harder than what it needed to be was lifts. And um, the, the thing I encouraged them to do was, again, set up the environment that, they, that, that allowed the guests to help manage themselves. And I said to them, look, guys, you don't need to be the police on this. You don't need to force people. If someone presents as a bubble, they're a bubble. We don't need to be asking them, are you a bubble, are you not? We just need to ask how many people in your bubble. Um, and then we can safely put them on the chairlift. But again, encouraging people to, uh, to space correctly. But if, if two people come up together, that's not up to our lifties to be policing. I think a lot of that, um, making it okay for the lifties to operate in a sensible way can help us get that over the line also. And how did you handle the tight quarters and capacity and rental, boot fit, some of those close contact points? It was, so in our, our rentals, they are an orange zone. So we're allowed um, one metre spacing or you are permitted to have some brief contact. And again, it's about the staff being comfortable. Um, most of the staff in rentals will wear some kind of PPE, whether it's gloves or um, masks. Um, and particularly if they're assisting guests with fitting boots or so on, and, or that kind of thing. Um, so again, it's just setting up that environment, um, making sure the staff are well educated on on what close contact means and, and making sure they're comfortable with that. Paul and Bridget, if I could ask a question, how did you manage and monitor interior capacities? So for us, we for our restaurant areas, we put um, we put concierges on the door. So we've got, we, we established two zones in each of our restaurants, actually, sorry, three zones. We had a takeaway zone with um, floor dots um, and we had two 100 seated zones with concierges and um, table service. Um, that, that, and and we, we knew how, what the capacities were. We have quite a lot of different um, options at Cardrona, so have smaller restaurants, so it was actually more around distancing inside the restaurant. Some of them were big enough, but put people on the doors, concierge them, contact trace them in and manage those doors and had queuing outside. One area that was quite interesting was toilets, because um, a lot of our toilets were connected inside the cafe, so <clears throat> we had to choose the cafe that had, had the most toilets, and actually um, I love the makeshift tables is we're using we, we we did the same thing where we use tables almost as walls so flip them upside down because you take you know most of your seats come out anyway flip them upside down and separated the entrance to the toilet off to the main cafe so that we could keep the flow into the toilets because you do need to keep um, toilets open um, for everyone on the resort I'm looking for some of the silver linings that we're hoping that there might be that through this you thought well that actually you know we got to try something that maybe we were circling anyways and it worked well any any silver linings to you know I think uh, um, Stuart said it earlier where he said um, what, what was the silver lining it was well retail um, and being able to spread your guests out you know, weekend to, you know, to midweek. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think one, it was, yeah. So I, I, one of the big ones for us early on was um, discovering a whole new market. So we lost, we lost the Australians out of our market, which are usually 40% of the, of the business into Queenstown. And they were more than displaced with the number of New Zealanders from the North Island, mainly, who came and holidayed in Queenstown. And we had thought that Kiwis, um, Kiwis have usually got gorse in their pockets, um, or a lot of the ones that we see, um, and they don't spend a lot of money on food and beverage or snow sports lessons. But we were um, consistently sold out of snow sports products because the, the domestic market who started to travel domestically actually behaved more like overseas guests who usually come to our resort. So, um, for us, that's fantastic, and I think as an industry, we need to work on how we unlock that for the future, because I think there'll be a lot of Kiwis whose mates came skiing over um, over the July school holidays and had an absolute blast um, and want to come back. So we've got to make sure we, we hang on to that market. 
Yeah, yeah. and I, I would to totally add to that. I think that that's been really exciting to see those new Kiwis. And um, I think also we've got to understand that New Zealand's going to look like a really attractive and safe place to come and either live or move to and holiday to. So we're very aware of that. There's quite a lot of cultural change in this environment. And um, some of the experiences, for example, space in the cafe and people not just sitting there with their bags and hogging tables and things like has been as has been actually really pleasant and the food and beverage yield hasn't gone down as much as we had expected. Um, so it does show you that, um, you know, making people think about coming inside and how they use the indoor facilities is good. So I'm not saying that's going to be a way we have to operate in the future, but it's definitely something we should keep really, really alert to the opportunities of what actually is better in this, you know, how, how does it, what are the better things in operating like this? And I think, I, I personally think that social distancing will be a thing of the future. People will feel more comfortable, more separated. So um, I think there's some really big learnings in how we manage our capacity out of this to deliver a better experience for our guests. And when you, um, in your uh, video you talked about when you switched to, you said using your, your car as your mini lodge. Um, how did that play out? Did you see people coming with full tailgate setups? Did you, did you yep. see Creative. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's like the history of skiing in New Zealand is you have a picnic basket in the back of your car and you lift up your boot and that's what you do. But um, we really promoted that and it's something that we haven't before because a lot of people do bring their food to resorts in New Zealand. So we have a lot of what we call brown baggers or people that picnic and often they'll come and come into the cafes and, and have their picnics in the cafes which is really awkward for us so encouraging that and saying that it's okay has been great we've seen deck chairs um probably had to turn a little bit of a blind eye to people that are you know having a few beers in the back of their car because you can't sort of be too strict on that stuff either you're asking people to do things for you so um but it has been great and that is really cultural for new zealand to, to be like that so it's been quite nice to watch that some of the questions here are, you know obviously there's a cost to um putting in all these measures. So uh, there is a question here, a couple questions on the impact on budgets and whether there was a little charge that you had to put on or did you have to charge more to be able to cover the plexiglass and the, all of the COVID signage and all the new things? Like, did you change your pricing? We, look, we were just so pleased to be operating. Um, those kind of things really just pale into insignificance. Um, I mean, to be honest, I've got no idea what we spend on signage, stanchions, um, perspex, PPE. It, it kind of doesn't matter because when you do the numbers, um, being open is uh, vastly better than being closed. So, um, <laughs> and, and I really just kind of empowered the staff to make those decisions that they needed to make, coordinate the purchasing where we could and, and get on with it. It's It's... It's um, chicken feed compared to the, the cost of being closed. Yeah. Um, what about media? How, how, you know, I've heard from a bunch of operators yeah. that there isn't a day that goes by when they aren't asked, what is your plan? You we know, we were really, really lucky um, during the lead into the season. We, I mean, I, I've, used the, I've used the term beacon of hope. Like we were in lockdown and the media were looking for positive stories and I think Bridget you and I were on national news just about every night for three four weeks it was unbelievable publicity for the industry and people just saw it as a um I I, I believe this and hopefully I'm not just looking at it through roast tinted glasses but they saw it as a great example of an industry working together and a really positive um a positive affirmation of, of what we could do as a country as, and as an industry so I think we I think we benefited from that. Yeah, we did. We benefited big time because we were seen as the sort of stars and, you know, hopefully the recovery of the economy, especially down in Queenstown, Wanaka area. I mean, we, we even had the Prime Minister arrive on opening day and, you know, told everyone to come, which we kind of regretted in the July school holidays, but it was fine in the end. <laughs> so you found some good ways to spin this, not spin it, but just reap the good PR from handling it well. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, Paul's right. We have... We, you know, I think the ski ski has become really well known across New Zealand, more well known than it ever was before. We've been, we have been in the front of um, front face because we were the first part of the industry, and especially the tourism industry, to start back up 
post lockdown so um and get you know hotel beds filled restaurants filled retail shops filled so people are looking at us and you know you sort of have to pinch yourself and not take it for granted that they're looking at us and and, and hugely grateful yeah I, I can see you know we're circling that here too just because there's such a pent-up you know, need to get outside and fresh air and, you know, and uh, exercise. And so, yeah. That's a really good point. Um, One thing that I think everyone's learned through lockdown is what do they truly value? What makes them happy? And, you know, you can see it. You can see it by mountain bike sales across the world um, that people value being outside. They value outside. They value nature. They value being with their families. And, you know, we are in an industry that they will continue to value more and more and more. So there is an enormous amount of opportunity coming out of this for Alpine Resorts. North American Resorts are prepping to capitalize on these opportunities. We'll be diving into some of these topics on future huddles. If you'd like to join the huddle conversation, email huddle at saminfo.com. The September issue of Sam Magazine is hitting mailboxes soon. Subscribe or renew your subscription to Sam at www.saminfo.com slash subscribe. This small cost is a big value for you and your team. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Pod Sam advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Wintry Mix podcast guy. I am Sarah Bordeaux, and thank you for listening to Pod Sam. <laughs>